Welcome back to the Advent Calendar House, a salute to all holiday specials, but mostly the Christmas ones. Today, we're kindly rewinding back to 1967 to explore the often overlooked first hand-drawn animated Christmas special from Rankin Bass Productions, based on Charles Dickens' other Christmas story, The Cricket on the Hearth. I am Shantu's cat who has nothing to do with anything, Mike Westfall. And joining me is one of my mates from the Christmas Podcast Network, direct from Christmas Past, it's Brian Earle. Welcome, Brian. Well, thank you so much. Very happy to be here. It's great to have you on. Now, I shared a list of some of the specials I'm covering this year with the rest of the network, and you said you were interested in this one. So why don't you tell me a little about your history with watching this and maybe the original story, if you could. Yeah, well, this is one of those um, specials that I think I was sort of vaguely aware of. And when I, I rewatched it for the first time, um, maybe back in 2016 or 2017, and this was because on Christmas past, I had done an episode about the uh, so-called golden age of Christmas cartoons. So that includes most of the ones that came from the 1960s, Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, Charlie Brown, uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and all the rest. And I had on as a guest the wonderful Joanna Wilson, who was talking about uh, how the animation industry was changing around that time and how Rankin-Bass specifically had happened upon the winning formula for creating a good Christmas cartoon, which was not only that uh, some innovations had been made in the animation industry that allowed studios like Rankin-Bass and Hanna-Barbera to produce a lot of high-quality content very quickly, uh, but also they had stumbled upon this idea that if we have celebrities voicing the characters and we hire composers to come up with really basically Broadway-quality music, that's the formula for creating something that is really going to endure. And one of the examples that she mentioned about that was The Cricket on the Hearth. And when I watched it again, part of me recognized some of what I was seeing. I had this vague sense, like, some of this feels familiar somehow, but I don't remember ever sitting down to watch it as a child. And there's probably a good reason for that. It, it just doesn't enjoy the same kind of enduring um, uh, popularity as do some of its counterparts. I don't think it was ever on in prime time when I was growing up in, in Massachusetts. But part of it was familiar enough, so it must have been on in the background somewhere. I must have seen snippets from it or, or, or somehow, somewhere, it got into my psyche and stayed there that when I sat down to watch it all the way through, it wasn't so much that I was reliving something, but rather uh, just digging up an old memory. Uh, and I was actually surprised to find this is one of those cartoons that doesn't get as, as much attention as it deserves. It's actually very deserving of a wider audience. Um, it does quite a bit with the story. There, there's a lot that it leaves out from Dickens' original, and I'm sure we'll get into all of that. But it was... Um, you just it's a really, really nice one. And what I find interesting about it upon repeated watchings, I think maybe I've watched it three or four times uh, since rediscovering it, is that the story to song ratio is like one to one. It's like for every three lines of dialogue, they break into song. I think it has more songs than any of the other rank and bass ones. They stuff them in there. It's like they they just want it's almost like they had extras and they didn't want them to go to waste. <laughs> and 
the quality of some of them, uh, when I was growing up, I listened to a lot of Christmas music on, on vinyl records, and I still have a lot of those vinyl records to, to this day. I break them out every year. And one of them was from the Ray Conniff Singers, and it has that quintessentially 60s sound of like all these voices in unison and all the whatever instruments were popular on the day, the vibes and the marimbas and all of that kind of stuff. And you hear a lot of that in this. I mean, if for no other reason, it's worth checking out to hear the music because I, I think it's just top notch. Agreed with that. I did get a lot of those almost like Filth Spectre vibes with that. It was a wall of sound. Yes. Yeah. But uh, believe it or not, this was the first time I watched this special. I thought I had seen it before starting this podcast because when I first started, I was reading through the list of Rankin Bass Christmas specials, trying to figure out which ones I wanted to do first. I saw Cricket on the Hearth. Second one on there, right after Rudolph. And first I thought, oh yeah, I've seen that. And then later it hit me, wait, that's Rankin Bass? I thought it was Chuck Jones. Here I was thinking of A Very Merry Cricket, which is a very different mm. thing. Mm -hmm. And I have seen that. That is that is Chuck Jones and a sequel to Cricket in Times Square. This is indeed Rankin Bass. Uh, and it's based on the Dickens story from 1845. That's two years after A Christmas Carol. But I also liked this. I thought it was very well animated for 1967. Uh, here I found out the animation was outsourced to TCJ Animation in Japan, which is now called Aiken. For any of y'all way more familiar with anime than I am, same studio. And I wondered at first why this seems to have been mostly forgotten, like you said, among the other Rankin-Bass Christmas specials. Uh, my theory right now is that this Dickens story is less Christmassy than a Christmas Carol. It's exactly. Like die hard of Rankin Bass specials. <laughs> it's not really about Christmas as much as it's set during Christmas, which is enough for you and me, but perhaps not to everyone. Now, if you hadn't made that point, I was going to, because that was really what impressed <laughs> me about this. Uh, it is Christmas-esque. It is Christmas adjacent. It is not a Christmas story. Also both contain an evil man named Hans, but more on that later. First, we've got to talk about our presenter. This special is a bit unique in that it's bookended by short live-action segments featuring Danny Thomas. Christmas is sort of special for everybody, and we have a very special show that I sincerely believe will heighten your Christmas. Of the Danny Thomas show fame in the 50s and 60s, or for my fellow 80s kids, you probably remember seeing those Nick at Night promos for Make Room for Daddy reruns. Same show, different title. Uh, Brian, do you have any other go-to Danny Thomas projects? I do not, as a matter of fact, but I I do love that book ending. Yeah. Um, it's something that I think I saw it more on, on Masterpiece Theater when I was growing up. On PBS, someone would come and introduce the story, then we'd watch the story, and then they'd sort of recap it. And it's not really a framing device, right? You don't, like, drop in and out of the narration versus the story. Uh, it's just more like... I, I don't. It's something you don't see today. It very much places this special in the time that it was created, mm -hmm. in a way that, like, if you tried to recreate it today, it would seem like a pastiche or a shtick or something like that. But it seems very much at home and very 1960s, even down to the details of the room that Danny Thomas is in, and just like the like the Technicolor uh, colors coming off, and just like everything about his his demeanor and his posture and his the way that he's sitting at the piano. It, it just um. It adds something indescribable that, that makes the, the – it 
makes the special feel like it's being hosted, if, if that makes sense. It makes you feel like you have someone who's there to lead you through the experience of watching the show. Yes, Masterpiece Theater. I didn't think of that, but that's a very good comparison to what's going on here. And it is a very nice-looking living room set, almost. And it has that Technicolor Christmas tree in the background. And, and every red is a very vibrant red. And here he is introducing the story and gives us the old, Oh, you haven't heard of the cricket on the hearth? And first off, it's a weird cut. One second he's standing up by the tree, and then you hard cut to him sitting on the couch. And he'd making this weird face at me like, What, do you live under a rock? You never heard this story? And then he immediately admits, well, I'll tell you the truth, I'd never heard of it either. Yeah, I think he is all of us in that context. (laughs) And in a lot of ways, it's not unlike some of those other Rankin-Bass productions where the the narrator is an animated figure, you know, like in Santa Claus is Coming to Town or the one about the Easter Bunny. He's playing that role. And I I don't know, maybe it was uh, less expensive to film something live action than to animate uh, another character into the show. But I I actually think it adds instead of subtracts something from the experience. Agreed. They definitely did want to do a redo of that Burr Lives. You haven't heard the story of Rudolph, but Mm. I'd be fine if he just went, yeah, me neither. But he makes that face like, what do you mean you don't know cricket on the hearth? But but all right. So he sits down on the piano and he goes right into our theme song. One Christmas morning, you may look into your stocking. And find that something shocking has occurred Among the candy canes and toys You'll hear a funny little noise You've got yourself a cricket on the hearth And then we meet our narrator, Cricket Crockett I suppose I had never seen a happier room And there, in the corner Was the nicest little hearth you could ever hope for Voiced by Roddy McDowell, best known to most probably as Cornelius from Planet of the Apes, but best known to me from Batman the Animated Series as the Mad Hatter. I did not know that. Yes, uh, there are a few episodes with the Mad Hatter character, and he's been around in Batman comics since the 40s, since whenever they decided uh, Lewis Carroll's public domain. Yeah, that would make a good Batman villain, but he shows up a few times on that. Anywhere else you know Roddy McDowell from? Actually, no. Um, I, I had heard, I knew the name. He's obviously one of those figures that's just in the ether. Everyone knows the name, but I really had no experience with him other than this show. Right. And that's the same way with me. It's not until I'm going through Wikipedia and I'm like, oh, that. Oh, there he is. Okay. Then I get down the Batman. I'm like, now it. Now I know the voice. And even Marlo Thomas, like I clearly know who Marlo Thomas is, but it took me a moment to say, where is she from? Like, oh, right. Every day after school, there would be back to back episodes of the Brady Bunch followed by that girl. And that's how I know Marlo Thomas. <laughs> there you go. Marlo Thomas is a voice in this one. And as I'm looking up her Wikipedia, I'm like, hey, she she's married to Phil Donahue? What a weird fact. I think I did know that. And I'm not sure if she just looks really, really good for her age or if Phil Donahue doesn't. But that does <laughs> not sound like – that doesn't – that's not the kind of couple that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it does. I mean, she's in her 80s now, but it still seems like – as you remember it, like, what, what do they call it? Like a May-November relationship? or <laughs> Yeah, I think that's about right. But 
We meet, speaking of December, we meet Cricket as an elderly-looking wrinkled old insect as he's walking along a snowy windowsill and lifts up this full human-sized wooden-framed window like he's the Hulk. I mean, he is green, but he explains he lives here and he begins to tell us this is the framing device. They have Danny Thomas bookending this and then they have another framing device within with, with old man Cricket, old Cricket Crockett explaining how he became part of the family that lives in this house, and we flash back to springtime in the 19th century England, as this cricket looks for, as he puts it, a proper family to adopt. No real explanation beyond that, but crickets, its pets, apparently peaked in the 19th century around this time and are commonly thought of as good luck in countries like China, and repeated here by Caleb Plummer, a toy maker, also voiced by Danny Thomas, who invites Cricket to stay with him as sort of an apology for almost stepping on him. But Now, interesting adaptation here, because Caleb is not the central character of the Dickens story, Brian. Nope. It's the Peerybingles. Yes. They're nowhere here. It, you have, totally cut out. No. You have John and Dot. John's a carrier. They have their baby and a nanny. None of them here are even mentioned. They had to fit in that dancing cat. Somebody had to go. (laughs) And it's something we can get into more. It's not clear throughout the story whose story it is, uh, because most of the action that unfolds is the the romance with uh, Berta and sort of choosing between which path she's going to take about marrying the miser or whatever happens to her her, um, old boyfriend. but then there's also the the B. It's hard to tell which is the A and which is the B plot because then um, the cricket himself goes on this this uh, madcap adventure, yeah. and then of course you know toward the end everything coalesces. It all just kind of intertwines with each other, kind of like how the Dickens story is. You have these these Peary Bingles, and the way it's described, it's just they encounter Caleb here. But so I guess that made them easy to cut out, but. Another pretty big change from the original text becomes apparent as we meet Caleb's daughter, Bertha, as her boyfriend, Edward, prepares to be deployed by the Royal Navy. Now, in the Dickens original, Edward is Bertha's brother, and he's in love with another character, May, and here they sort of combined Bertha and May into one character, which we'll explain shortly. But first, Edward sings us a song called Don't Give Your Love Away. Don't give your love away Wait for me, I will come back to you And we'll have a thousand days of May Don't give your love away That's the voice of Ed Ames, the singer of My Cup Runneth Over, and he played the Native American Mingo in the 60s TV series Daniel Boone. I am just taking the internet's word for all of that. And as we mentioned, Bertha's voiced by Danny Thomas's own daughter, Marlo Thomas, best known as That Girl, but she later starred in another Rankin-Bass animated special called That Girl in Wonderland. Yeah, that happened. Did you really? I've never heard of that before. Yeah. That's a thing. Uh, It was 71, I think. Is it a Christmas show? It is not. It looks like it's an Alice in Wonderland adaptation, but with her character from that girl in the place of Alice. Hmm. 
Well, with Edward gone, Caleb and Bertha continue making toys, now with the additional help of Cricket as Bertha sings another song. You were really right, right from the get-go. This is their third song on this special, and we've barely gotten into the story. But she sings about how she misses her Edward, but remembers their happy times together in a song called Smiles Go With Tears. Smiles go with tears, smiles go with tears, sometimes when you're happiest, smiles go with tears. When you haven't seen a loved one, and he suddenly appears. And I have to say, during these songs, some of the um, the visuals that we see are really, really stunning. Uh, it almost seems to take a different texture. And I think when I was reading about this, I heard that some of the uh, action sequences or the animated sequences are, are actually stop motion and not the, the uh, traditional animation. I think those, uh, the, the montages of the songs are what they're referring to. There's something about the, the lighting and the texture. It has almost a, um, yeah, just a very different look to it. That makes a lot of sense now that I'm thinking back to, because that's when I really noticed the animation here is really fluid, and I'm pretty amazed by that at this point in history. But as far as the music goes, we mentioned it before, but this is the most 1967 Rankin-Bass song. Mm -hmm. And you've got all the toys around the toy shop dancing and hugging each other like... There's a pair of patchwork elephants that I thought looked like they blew over from Winnie the Pooh, but that didn't come out until the following year. But <laughs> uh, a tune as joyous as this can only be followed by dark tragedy. And in the door, accompanied by the nice touch of a thunderstorm, is Jeremiah Bleak that they gave a name to for about three or four dialogues of line. But he's a tall, green-skinned, Count Chocula-looking fellow who must deliver the terrible news that Edward has been lost at sea. I think it is my melancholy duty to inform you. <laughs> and I had put down here, he looks like the prototype of a haunted mansion ghost. And here, right down to being voiced by favorite of both Rankin Bass and this podcast, the winterly named Paul Freeze is back. You have a certain Bertha Plummer for a daughter? Who in turn was engaged to a certain Edward Belton. You mean, is engaged? I am sorry, but it is my melancholy duty to inform you that a certain Edward Belton, late of Her Majesty's Royal Navy, is lost at sea. Lord have mercy. No! 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 That is an awesome name. Do you have a favorite Paul Freeze performance? Are you familiar enough with that voice? No, but I do now after having seen The Cricket on the Hearth. And I, I will say that character just would not look out of place in a Scooby-Doo mystery. Yeah. Uh, you were right. There's the, the green pallor. There's everything about him is lugubrious. Uh, and he has the melancholy duty of delivering the, the somber news. Um, he, he was a cool character. I kind of wish he, uh, we saw more of him. Yeah. Paul Free shows up a lot in Rankin-Bass, usually as Santa Claus. He's Santa in Frosty. I believe he's Santa... Oh, well, first Easter Rabbit is what's jumping to mind here, but I know him best as the ghost host of the Haunted Mansion. <laughs> hmm. Well, the news of Edward being lost at sea puts Bertha into such severe shock she loses her eyesight. And back to the point about Bertha being merged with the character of May from the original text, Bertha is blind from the get-go in Dickens, and Edward 
as mentioned, is her brother who travels to South America and is thought to be dead. And they don't really elaborate too much on that, but here they bring about Bertha's blindness due to the shock of her boyfriend, Edward, believed to be dead. Now, were you familiar with the original story before you watched this? Um, yes, I think it's something I must have read a couple of chapters of it when I took a Victorian lit class in college. You know, those kind of uh, classes where it's like, oh, just read chapters three through four or something like that. And we'll discuss them on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. It was one of those deals. So I knew enough about the story. And then a couple of years ago, I was reading uh, the uh, Christmas Carol all the way through, which is something I'd actually never done. And then started to read his other Christmas stories, uh, the chimes and uh, this one and the haunted man, the ghost Spargan and all that. Um, but like none of it's stuck. I, mean, I kind of find that it's a little hard to get through one of those Dickens books and, uh, and remember it all. <laughs> right. I feel like it might be weird or maybe even outrageous to some bigger Dickens fans out there, but too bad. Works for me as someone less familiar with the original work. I don't mind the change at all. Story still works. But also interesting to introduce a concept as as complex as the psychological phenomenon known as hysterical blindness yeah. into a children's, presumably, Christmas special. That's what I keep coming back to, because there are a few moments where it's like, this happened in a Christmas special for children, or families at least. At least it's presented as a family special. Well, and there's also an implied murder, which we'll get to. Oh, yes, uh, that's exactly what I was referring to. We're going to get there, folks. Oh, I should also point out, did you notice as Caleb kind of consoles the now blind Bertha, we pan over to a doll she had been painting, and the only thing missing on the doll are the eyes that she hadn't painted yet? Yeah, I did notice that, and it's kind of creepy. Like a a doll with no eyes is creepy in its own right, but then given the symbolism of everything that's transpired, uh, it adds an extra layer to it. Yeah, they don't go back to that doll, but that was a really cool touch to kind of that seemed like it was a very built-in commercial break there. So this is where we stop and go to a few words from our sponsors. Because this is a 50-minute special. You add some commercials, and it's a pretty clean hour. Mm-hmm. Well, Caleb trying to help his distraught daughter has to stop making toys and puts all his time and money into having doctors look at Bertha. But they're unable to restore her sight. And Caleb's eventually forced to close his toy shop and look for work elsewhere. And with Cricket's help, they find work at another toy shop owned by the nefarious Tackleton, voiced by Hans Conried, the very obvious voice of Disney's Captain Hook. Ah. If you go back and listen to this, you can absolutely hear that same voice in there, which I liked. As soon as I heard it, I was like, that's Captain Hook. <laughs> Did you hear that, Uriah Kaur? He wants to know where the other toy makers are. <laughs> there are no other toy makers. <laughs> Who also took a turn as the Grinch in Halloween is Grinch Night, so there's that connection. Tackleton, accompanied by this giant pet crow, Uriah Kaur, also Paul Freeze, hires, with air quotes, Caleb for no pay, but allows him to live on his property, so working for rent, basically. But Caleb doesn't have the heart to tell this to Bertha, so he says their new living arrangements are splendid, and says he's been made the head man of the shop, which isn't too much of a lie, because he's the only one working there, but here's where we get another song, as Caleb decides he will be Bertha's eyes for her, 
And everything he sees will be beautiful, and that brings us into Through My Eyes. Through my eyes, you will see the world as it should be. You know, regarding Caleb deciding to present this version of reality to his blind daughter, I'm so used to seeing people in movies and TV lying and having it come back to bite him in the end, but... That doesn't happen here. There are no consequences to this lie. I mean, there kind of is, but they're not too negative. It's just a cute little sentiment in the song. You'll see a better world through my eyes. I think it's uh, yeah, maybe that he's not presenting to her the important piece of information, which is his new boss, because if she had any understanding of what he uh, looked like or was like, we wouldn't end up in the situation we end toward the end of the story. Right. He's inventing this sort of reality that they're they're better off now. He invents a cook and a butler named Jarvis. Hey, Jarvis! We're in the Marvel Universe now. It works because Jarvis only exists because Bertha has no vision. (laughs) Uh, Well, later that night, we see Cricket cursing out his new living conditions with his blinkety-blooming hearth. All the blinkety blooming hearth in all the blinkety-blooming world, this hearth is the blinkiest and the bloomingest. And I just am laughed out loud at that because cricket itself is a euphemism. For Christ, the reason we have Christmas. But if the crumbling fireplace isn't bad enough and drops Uriah Caw to chase around the cricket until Tackleton wakes up and calls him back to his cage, so we get a Wacky little Scooby-Doo-style chase sequence, because it's fun. We got to fill an hour here. And I don't know if you noticed this as I did. It was right around this time where, if you if you pay attention, there are times where the bird seems to be changing colors. For a split second, it'll be a lighter shade of gray and then switch over. And I can't tell if there was some sort of effect they were going for or just like a an oversight that they didn't have time to correct. Now that you mentioned, I do see it. And I'm so used to seeing that. Like, later in history, you see that a lot in the 80s when production values just dipped. So, I'm so used to thinking, oh, yeah, that happened. All of a sudden, He-Man has brown hair for two seconds. (laughs) Well, now, Christmas starts to be a tiny bit important to our story, as we're now a week out from Christmas Day. Miss Tackleton tells Caleb he's using too much paint on the doll's faces and paint costs money. We see Caleb and Cricket sneak into the workshop at night, elves and shoemaker style, to fix them up proper. But all of that's really just details to get us through the story. Uh, It's kind of glossed over, and we cut to two days before Christmas, when Caleb bumps into a man whom Cricket only identifies as him. I read ahead, so I know who it is. Brian, did you immediately catch on at this point? I have to admit, I had my suspicions, yes. Spoiler alert, kids, it's the not-lost-at-sea-anymore Edward, the only man in this whole special drawn with primary color blue eyes. So that helped. <laughs> uh, but he's in disguise for some reason. He's posing as this old beggar with a long gray beard, and the ever-kind Caleb invites him to stay with him. So here's where he addresses Bertha by name and surprises her. And at this point, I think she knows what's up, but he immediately backtracks, saying, oh, I was being too forward. I'll call you Miss Plummer. 
But Caleb then tells him they're all one family here, and it's almost Christmas, and that's when Bertha asks if they're going to have their usual mistletoe and Christmas tree in the works, and here is where Caleb decides he's not quite up to lying about Christmas, and we go into another song called The First Christmas. On the first Christmas There was no mistletoe On the first Christmas There was no winter snow No fireplace No Christmas tree No decorations Just the wise men three And it was Christmas this, I think, is one of those montages that you described as this might be stop motion in the works because it's just, they kind of pan over a larger image of a nativity scene. Yeah, and then there is the uh, the thing with the, the silhouettes and the framed portraits. I believe it was that song. And then sort of pans back to see them sitting in front of a fire. Um, there's something about the style that changes yeah. for the better, I, I thought. Well, we cut the Christmas Eve and Tackleton decides to pay Caleb and Bertha a small Christmas bonus of a few shillings, but then announces what he really wants is a wife, specifically Bertha. Very romantically adding, we could wed tomorrow, it's a holiday, that way we wouldn't miss a day's work. What a smooth guy. So he and Bertha, he gives Bertha a seemingly arbitrary hour and 15 minutes to think it over. I checked the original story, but I couldn't find that hour and 15 minutes in there. Yeah, I'm not sure what was happening in an hour and 15 minutes, or if that was just meant to show that he drives a hard bargain. It's 45 past the hour. I'll give you an hour and 15 minutes. That's all I could think of. It's a big decision. You need that extra 15 minutes. but (laughs) Because Caleb's been telling his daughter everything's great this whole time, here's the consequence. Bertha's on board for marrying Tackleton, despite her dad insisting she's still a child. And we get another song right away about how she's a big grown-up woman now. And this is called That Was Yesterday. complete with an animated photo album which includes a young Bertha and Edward in a little boy's naval outfit like Baby Kermit. This seems like another filler song, but just y'all wait. I actually like this song. We, we sort of see Bertha growing up, and the thing I noticed about her is her eyes are the same size through all stages of life. Yes. Uh, that's really, the thing that really jumps out about um, the character when I first saw her is like, A, she looks a lot like Belle from Beauty and the Beast. Mm. Um B, she's a little oddly proportioned. I couldn't tell if she's supposed to be wearing a hoop skirt or if it was just like the Rankin-Bass, like just odd body proportions for cartoon characters. I think it might be both. Uh, And C, like, yeah, just these enormous brown eyes uh, that even when she was a child take up like two thirds of her head. Right. And I'm so used to seeing, I remember watching Santa Claus is Coming to Town for the first time with my kids, or at least this past year with my kids when they're a little older. And they notice that Jessica has just plain blue eyes. She doesn't have just the little black dot or an iris or not an iris or a pupil or anything. Like, why are her eyes just blue like that? 
why don't they look like everything else's? And I'm like, it's really just for effect that's supposed to make her look more beautiful. Mm. And I feel like they're trying, this is sort of the prototype for that, for this first thing where she's got those big, bright brown eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for now, Bertha shares the good news with our mysterious old beggar who had come in with some good news of his own, but seeing Bertha so happy without getting married causes him to awkwardly leave. But Cricket is still determined not to let Bertha marry Tackleton, not because he knows anything about our mysterious stranger that we've already identified. But So before he returns... He rounds up some of his mates, which appear to be a robin, a rat, and a cockroach. At the local pub, yeah. The local pub. Well, before that, no, uh, Tackleton arrives for tea, and from the top of the fireplace, this rat drops two chestnuts in the cup at the request for two lumps. And then the cricket starts to add some pepper, and Tackleton sneezes so violently he's forced to leave. Mm Mm-hmm. And back in his office, he immediately knows it was the cricket somehow. So he asks his crow, Uriah, uh, to get rid of him, even if it takes getting some professional help. And here's where we go to the bar. Uh, Here's where things just get weird for no reason. Here we go. Uriah flies to this sleazy dockside bar full of drinking rats and dogs and cats and other animals. All voiced by Paul Freese, apparently. But... Then we get another song, and it's the most bizarre musical number of this whole special. Mm -hmm. It's this nightclub singer, cat named Mole, singing about fish and chips. Diamond spurs and ocean trips, they don't go with tuppence tips. Don't feed me champagne talk when we're eating fish and chips. While the various animal patrons give her googly eyes. Brian, what is this? This is what I was talking about before. I kind of feel like they, they must have bought a package of songs or something. And this was this just sort of came with the rest of them. Like, we, we got to use it somehow, somewhere. Um, and this is like it really kind of puts a fine point on the, the change in tone that the story takes at this point. Like this, I did not see this coming. And then when it happens, it's sort of like, where is this going to go? And it gets more and more ridiculous. Well, I'm sure we'll get into it, like just how everything uh, transpires and how everything works out. Uh, and then I, I couldn't think of a better way to open such a bizarre sequence of events than this particular song. <laughs> it's so out of place just to help fill this hour. The only thing I can relate it to is like, it reeks of a Sherman Brothers song. And I'm thinking back to Mary Poppins, especially now having seen Saving Mr. Banks and learning more about P.L. Travers having to deal with Walt Disney, adding dancing cartoon penguins to her precious stories for no reason. That's this, but a cat singing about fish and chips in a Christmas movie. Hmm. Uh, And the cat is Abby Lane, who was a very well-known singer in the 60s. I know her best... Uh, as a one-off flight attendant in Twilight Zone, the movie, in that remake of the Gremlin on the Wing bit. Oh. Uh, but she comes in as this cat, dances and sings fish and chips, and is gone forever. But elsewhere in the bar, Uriah gets the help of a cat and a monkey to go tie up the cricket and sell him to a ship captain sailing to China. They give this cat and monkey names... It's Strangler and Slink. They give them a line or two each. Again, it's Paul Freeze's both. And that's all they do. 
because they kidnap the cricket and they sell him to the ship captain for the low, low price of getting shot to death. Now, where's our pay? I've got your payoff right here, lad. And this is, as far as I know, the only Christmas cartoon where there's there's like gunfire. There's a gunshot and you know that the gunshot means that two characters have died. Oh, yeah. The, the shootings are off screen. But we see the captain pull out a gun and then just rays of light emitting from a porthole on the ship with each gunshot. So we got a clearly implied murder in the Christmas movie for families. And there's clearly a commercial break after that. So they stop the show with a murder here. And I just... I couldn't help but laugh, but if I was a kid, that would that might have shocked me. But it'll give you something to think about as you watch the commercials for Tide. Yes, watch this Tide commercial after the crow gets shot to death. Oh, they should have made it all three of them crows, and then it would be a murder of a murder of crows. Ah, so now we're at sea with the seedy captain, but Cricket ties up this loose end very quickly by playing dead himself, tricking the captain into tossing him into the sea, which would have been a perfect plan were it not for the age-old trope, oops, I forgot, I can't swim. And then immediately, oops, I forgot, crickets float. And here we get another, it's very quick, but it's a very random scene of the cricket's magical adventure back to land with the help of a whale, and then a pelican carries him in his mouth, to a swordfish who drops him off by a fleet of seahorses. None of this is in the Dickens story. This is all original for this special. It is a perfect deus ex machina. He even says, you'll never believe how I got back. And it's like, yeah, you're right. I, I never would. <laughs> I, but, but it's fun to watch. Yes. This is where, I think even with the seahorses, I feel like, okay, yeah, this was definitely outsourced to Japan because there's something about... That mm. group of sea animals that makes me think this is 60s anime. It does have a, a different look at that point, yeah. But Cricket finally returns home to find, oh no, a wedding dress. And it's now midnight, it's officially Christmas. And here we get shoehorned in that magical hour when the toys in Caleb's workshop come alive. So we're doing this now. This is a patchwork quilt of, of Christmas uh, magic. <laughs> it is. Uh, and at first they're worried that the crickets witness this. Oh, we've been observed. Humans aren't supposed to see us moving. But he's not human. He's a cricket. Uh, and he convinces the toys to help stop Bertha from marrying Tackleton. So they immediately take him to that old beggar. And Cricket's confused until they pull off the sleeping beggar's beard to reveal to the shock of the cricket and no one else watching... And it's Edward, who's still asleep, so we have to get the explanation as to how he survived after being lost at sea from a talking toy elephant. Because why not? And that's also Paul Freese's voice. He's the MVP of this special. <laughs> the toy elephant recounts the story of how Edward did not drown, but built himself a raft and sailed to a beautiful uncharted island... It's a whaler who takes him back home to England. I don't think we see any of these visuals. I think it's just we're looking at the elephant tell the story. Mm -hmm. He disguises himself as a beggar, and before we can tell the cricket why he's in disguise, the toy's magical time of self-awareness is up. Okay. Bye, toys. 
Well, conveniently, Edward wakes up now and finishes the story, saying when he discovered Bertha was blind, he kind of blamed it on himself and felt he couldn't just step back into her life after what he did to her, so that's why he disguised himself. Not to be shady at all, but just so he could be around Bertha without her knowing, because he didn't want to shock her again. Who knows what what sense she would have. She would lose after shocking him again, but... Wouldn't you know it, he made up his mind to tell her the truth on the same day she agreed to marry Tackleton. Womp womp. I have to say that the plan, there's a, there's a big flaw in this plan because in the first place, disguising yourself so that a blind woman won't recognize you is just a, right off the bat is not going to work. And then number two, it's well known that when you lose one sense, the others are sharpened. And so if she didn't recognize him by his voice, she almost certainly would have recognized him by his singing voice, which she hears after he comes back into the picture. That's true. This whole thing is convoluted and I can only surmise that the disguise was for the benefit benefit of the father so that he wouldn't recognize him and that would give uh, him an in to sort of sneak back into the house and be around Bertha. That actually makes sense now that you put it that way. Thank you. <laughs> but it's his sense of touch that makes her realize, yes, it's it's Edward come back to me because enough's enough. Cricket leads Edward right into Bertha's room, wakes her up, and all Edward needs to do is touch her hand and she knows it's him. And we get a reprise of that Through My Eyes song as Edward and Bertha get married in a church, apparently super early on Christmas morning, but after midnight mass, I'm guessing. Because here's the bishop. They got a bishop, apparently went straight to a bishop to arrange a last second marriage on Christmas morning. Mm -hmm. Churches aren't busy on Christmas. Edward's probably still legally dead at this point. We don't know who else is told he's alive. <laughs> They're married. Later that morning, here comes Tackleton, shocked to see Bertha as already married and begins breaking down crying. This just isn't fair. After all I've done for you. <laughs> and she explains her heart always belonged to Edward, but there would always be a place in her heart for a fine, kind, noble, and handsome gentleman such as you. Because for all she knows, he is Bind and kind and noble and handsome. Caleb never told her about Tackleton's true nature. And here, it's not clear to me as to whether she can magically see again. I'm assuming she still has no sight. Yeah, I assumed that too. Um, but then we, yeah, we never really know how it's supposed to resolve. And then the um, the thing with Tackleton, I think in the story, uh, the the Dickens story, not the cartoon, he's um has a little bit more of a transformation because I, I believe it was true that he had to relent to allowing Bertha to marry someone else. I, I forget what it was. There might've been some agreement, but th that sort of, he had a okay. quote unquote claim on her and his transformation is not unlike Scrooge's and that, you know, he sort of sees the light by witnessing true love. He, he, you know, his heart melts and he embraces the Christmas spirit or something along those lines. It is very Scrooge like even here. Well, he even has a similar line. He, I, believe Tackleton's line is, I'm as light as a lark, I'm as happy as a hummingbird, and that immediately mm -hmm. has that same sort of Scrooge rhythm to it. Uh, he's, I'm as giddy as a schoolboy, but Tackleton doesn't understand why, and it's Cricket who suggests, because it's Christmas. Uh, Caleb quickly tells Cricket he's the luckiest thing that ever happened to anyone, and that's it. We wrap up with old cricket again, wishing everyone a Merry Christmas, and may we never go without a cricket on our own hearths. Done. 
Yeah, we jump out of the story and back to the framing device. And it's interesting that they, they try to age the cricket. I'm not really sure what we're supposed to make of that. I, yeah, I don't know. Do crickets get wrinkles? I, I Let's assume so. Um, I guess so. But I, I think the real question is, do they live long enough to get uh, wrinkles? Right. Uh, and then we go back to Danny Thomas giving us the credits, recapping that line from the first Christmas song, The Holiday Season Has Changed, But the Reason We Celebrate Remains. And then he finishes with this line from an Edmund Cook poem. "'Tis not the weight of jewel or plate, or the fondle of silk or fur, tis the spirit in which the gift is rich, as the gifts of the wise men were. And we are not told whose gift was gold, or whose was the gift of myrrh." Which is a nice little sending off, a little random, but I think it works here. Well, certainly the the idea of... um breaking into a poem at the end of a Christmas story was, uh, again, like one of those things that you, I've, I haven't seen it since. It, it just seems to be localized to this one example of a very off-the-wall Christmas special. But for all of its its patchiness and, and, and all the little random parts together, taken as a whole and taken in the context of a very 1960s piece of media, uh, it works. It does. I feel like this is a lost classic. It really is. Any final thoughts about Cricket on the Hearth? Other than definitely check it out. And the good news is it's pretty easy to find. Um, I, I watched it on YouTube. Where did you watch it? I also watched it on YouTube. So get it while it's still there. And if for no other reason, just check out the songs. Like some of, some of those songs really are gems. They are. They stuffed this special with songs, but none of them, except for that one, seem out of place. You got a lot of good, like very... Hip 60 songs and then fish and chips out of nowhere. But still, all worth checking out. Well, Brian, if people want to spike your tea with chestnuts and pepper, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, Christmaspast.media. Be sure to check out the Christmas Past podcast. That's also a seasonal one. And the rest of the Christmas Podcast Network. Brian, thank you for joining me for this one. It was fun talking with you about it. You as well. Thank you so much for having me on. And show notes are at adventcalendar.house. You can say hi on Twitter at adventcalhouse. Until next time, for Brian Earle from the furriest dockside bar in the 19th century, this is Mike Westfall saying, careful of the icy patch. The Advent Calendar House and Christmas Past are both part of the Christmas Podcast Network, located conveniently at christmaspodcastnetwork.com. Bertha, Caleb's daughter, as her boyfriend Edward prepares to be deployed by the Royal Navy. Hang on a minute, I have a I have an alarm going off on my phone for some reason. <laughs> I thought you had the song queued up. Next time on the Advent Calendar House, Ziggy's gift. Brought to you by Atari, makers of home video games for fun your whole family can share. Here we are in downtown Toyland, where children's dreams come true. Hello, little girl. What do you think Santa's going to bring you this year? You want to what? 